Uh, we have been in the book of Esther this fall. And if you have not been with us, I'll recap the story just a little bit. Esther is a, a Jewish girl who becomes a queen in Persia. And she now has this opportunity to save her people from destruction. Haman is the villain of the story. He decides that the Jews no longer need to live in Persia. They need to be all annihilated. So he convinces the king to, uh, to sign an edict to, uh, to destroy all the Jews and plunder their property. Esther, being the queen, being Jewish, she, she uh, steps up and she intercedes on behalf of the people before the king. And this is where we are in the story. She's trying to talk to the king and get his mercy for her people. So let's read Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has asked. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let, let no one but me come with the king to the feast you prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The title of the sermon is A Gallows the Size of His Pride. I'm going with the Halloween theme a little bit. So I'm talking about the gallows and the cross today. 
so that's the, that's the simple outline. Talk about the gallows of pride and the cross of humility. Two points. This whole passage is about Haman and his pride and how he deals with his success and his failure in life. So we're going to try to do a little bit of, a, of an investigation of what pride is, how it affects us, how we can deal with it, and see if we can get a deeper understanding on pride and humility. So let's talk about the gallows of pride first. What's the problem with Haman? It's very clear that he is completely absorbed with himself. He can't stop talking about how great he is. He wants everyone to bow down to him. In fact, the king has to command everybody to bow down to him. It's not just that everybody instinctively bows down to him because he is such, a, such an important person in the kingdom. No, no, people don't like him, so the king has to command the people to bow down to him. He's very sensitive about what others think of him. Everything has to do with him, with himself. That is the essence of pride. Pride is an obsession with the self. It is the constant worrying and thinking about the self. Pride makes everything around us about the self. This is very clear in this passage about Haman. Now look at the size of the gallows Haman builds. Of course, we can't tell because it says 50 cubits, so it could be this tall. We don't know. But the archaeologists tell us and the historians tell us it's 75 feet tall. This is a huge gallows. It's huge. So everybody in the city of Susa would be able to see the gallows by Haman's house. And eventually, Haman hopes, would be able to see Mordecai hanging on the gallows. And everybody would know how important Haman is. Everybody would know what it costs people to disrespect Haman. So as much as we look at the life of Haman, all that seems to be about his honor and his respect, it seems to be not as much about killing Mordecai. He can just hire somebody to kill him quietly. This is not a problem for, for the most important person in the kingdom. But he makes a spectacle out of it because he wants to validate himself. He wants to show how important he is as much as how Mordecai has offended him. And that is exactly how pride works. It makes everything into a measurement of one's worth. Pride makes everything into a measurement of one's worth. So, me, a proud person, I'm not just interested in what certain people think. I am interested in what they think about me. That's my primary concern. It's not that their opinions matter to me. Their opinions about me matter to me. I'm concerned with how a particular situation reflects on me. That's going to be always my concern if I am proud. Everything becomes subjective. I'm not concerned about politics and economy in general. I'm concerned about how it affects me, how it makes me look. Pride is the unrelenting focus on the self. Now look at our text again. Let's, let's investigate it just a little bit further to see how Haman deals with life. Verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king has honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, 
Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited to her by her together with the king. Haman is focusing on his accomplishments. That's, that's the first dimension of pride. He's looking at his success, his accomplishments, his achievements. He gathers his family and friends around, and he tells them how great he is. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm wealthy. He's recounting the splendor of his riches. He says, I'm successful. I have ten sons that are going to take over my inheritance and, and my, my power. He says that he is, he's the only person that Queen, Queen Esther honors to invite to the feast that he's prepared for the king. Now, the impression I get from the text is that it's not the first time Haman did that with his family and friends. It seems like they're sort of on standby, ready to be his audience as he talks on and on about his own greatness. I don't see Haman the kind of husband that comes home and says, Honey, how was your day? I don't think he does that. He comes in and says, Let me tell you about my day. Let me tell you how much I've done today and how successful I've been and how much the king honors me and the queen invites me to her feast. So the people around him are simply there to accept his talking and to praise him and to recognize how great he is. And this is a familiar kind of pride for us. Most of us, that's what we think pride is. It's boasting about one's success and importance and achievements. But there's another kind of pride that is much more subtle and that we often miss and sometimes, in fact, we mistake it for humility. So let's read on the same text. Verse 13. After he recounted all of that, Haman says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman is still focused on himself, but now he's focused on the lack of honor and respect and importance coming from one person, Mordecai. So the first form of pride is determining one's worth based on one's accomplishments. The second form of pride is determining one's worth based on one's failures. It's the other side of the same thing. You see, a proud person is always focused on the self and is always determining, determining his or her worth, but you can do it through accomplishments or through your failures, or both, perhaps. Listen to Brennan Manning. He's a Christian writer. He says, We fluctuate between castigating ourselves and congratulating ourselves because we are deluded into thinking we save ourselves. Let me read this again. He says, We fluctuate between castigating ourselves and congratulating ourselves because we are deluded into thinking we save ourselves. Two sides of the same thing. We can congratulate ourselves on our accomplishments and feel good about ourselves and assign worth based on our accomplishments. Or we can castigate ourselves for our failures and feel bad about ourselves because we have failed. Just like Haman does here with Mordecai. Everybody loves him but with one person. And he's going to focus on that because it's one failure that he can't overcome. Because he's always assigning worth to himself. And Mordecai is assigning no worth to him, so that's going to be a problem for Haman. And that's going to spoil his joy, it's going to spoil everything else he's done. He's going to focus on that one thing, and he's going to say, that determines my worth. I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I've got to take care of it so I can feel better about myself. It doesn't matter if you think too much of yourself or too little of yourself. 
The point of pride is that you're always thinking about yourself. It doesn't matter how high you see yourself, how low. As long as you're looking at yourself constantly, as long as you're always defining yourself, validating yourself, assigning value and worth to yourself, it doesn't matter if it's through accomplishments or failures. You can be a proud person even if you're always self-deprecating. And that's where it's hard for us because we think that if I just speak poorly of myself, if I think poorly of myself, then I will be humble. But that's not true because you're still thinking about yourself. Your life is still focused on you. And that's pride. Pride does not have anything to do with, with how much worth you think you have. It's just that it is you who is assigning worth to yourself. That's pride. And that's what Manning is saying. He's saying we delude ourselves into thinking that we save ourselves. That's what I'm talking about. You're saving yourself, meaning you're validating yourself, you're, you're finding worth for yourself based on either your accomplishments or your failures or both. So a proud person could be the person who's always bragging about themselves, always talking about how great they are. But a proud person can also be a person who's always talking about their needs and their failures and their problems and their issues. They're just as proud. They're just proud in different ways. One is going to focus on themselves and tell you how great they are. The other one is going to focus on themselves and tell you how bad they are. But both are types of pride. Now, okay. So hopefully we get a handle on what pride is. Self-obsession. But, you know that our culture promotes this kind of obsession with the self. You know that uh, somebody, I think one professor said that, that all the levers of society are, are promoting self-obsession, promoting narcissism. It's true. The way our society is constructed is making you obsessed with yourself. You watch commercials, what they tell you? You're worth it. You deserve this. You should get it now. You can't wait for this. Who are they focused on? You. And they're making you focus on yourself. You know, in, in, in preschool and kindergarten, we are told that we must pursue our dreams and follow our heart and be true to ourselves. Who are they talking about? You. And so, so we are preconditioned to be proud people, to be self-absorbed and self-obsessed. And it is cast in positive light. Culture tells us that it's good for us to take care of ourselves. And if we only take care of ourselves, each individually, our society would be just, it would be good, it would be prosperous. So, you look at scripture and you say, maybe it's just an archaic view, maybe it's just a repressive culture that hasn't quite figured out that pride is actually good, that it's good to be self-obsessed and self-centered. And so I'd like to show you that the Bible is correct and our culture is not correct that pride is tremendously destructive. That if we are to pursue pride, it destroys numerous aspects of our lives. And I'll go through these. Scripture is clear in Proverbs 16, says that pride goes before destruction. When there's pride, there's going to be destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, first thing that pride does is destroys our reason. Destroys our, our, our rational approach to life. Look at Haman. He has tremendous wealth. He has the king's and the queen's favor, like no one else in the kingdom. He holds the most important political office in the empire after the king. He's the, prime, the analogous of uh, prime minister. And yet, 
he is tremendously worried about one insignificant middle manager and his lack of respect for him. That doesn't make any sense. If you look at it rationally, if you look at it objectively, it shouldn't be. Why would he worry about this one insignificant person not bowing down to him when the whole empire is commanded to bow down to him? And the king himself and the queen, they invite him to their private banquets. No one else but he gets to do that. And yet he's going to focus on this one man who seems to have a problem with him, and that's going to color everything else in his life. That's irrational. But that is exactly what pride does. Pride makes us stupid. It does. It makes us stupid to the point where you cannot rationally analyze your circumstances and feel good about what you need to feel good about and have a problem which you need to feel have a problem with. Little things that shouldn't matter become huge and affect relationships and careers and destroy lives. Because pride makes you foolish. Pride also destroys our joy. Proud people are not happy people. And by the way, you know that I'm speaking in general terms. I use things like proud people, I mean us. You know that, right? Talking about ourselves. To the degree that we are proud, we're not going to be happy. The more proud you are, the more bitter you're going to be. Pride does not allow you to enjoy anything for the sake of what it is because you're always using it to assign value to yourself. So you're not using anything just for its own sake. You're not enjoying people for their own sake. You're always using them. You're always looking for an angle to affect your worth. So if your parenting is about proving that you're a good parent, which is, I think, our neighborhood's mark, it's our neighborhood's idol, is that we're trying to prove we're good parents, or we're trying to put so much time and effort into our kids so that we feel good about ourselves. If that's the case, and you're still self-obsessed, even though you're parenting your children, you're not going to enjoy your children. If, if your marriage is about proving that you're not a loser, that this person could love you, if that's, that's how your relationship is, you're obsessed about yourself in their relationship, you're never going to enjoy that person. Because the person is always going to be a means, a tool, for, for your self-validation. Now, if your job, again, is a means for you to establish yourself and to prove something about yourself, it's not going to be enjoyable. It's going to be very stressful. So what I'm saying is that, that to be a joyful person, we need to forget about ourselves. You need to just take things lightly. You need to say, this is work, and I'm going to enjoy it. These are my kids, and I'm going to enjoy them, and not use them as tools to assign value to themselves. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about it in Screwtape Letters, and, and he describes what God wants for us in this particular aspect. Lewis says that God wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. God wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. What Lewis is saying is that God wants us to enjoy 
what He has given us, including our own abilities, including our own success, as if it was somebody else doing it. So I could rejoice in my position, in someone else's church and their success in ministry as much as I am rejoicing in my own church and my own success in ministry. And whatever, put it in whatever area of life that you're struggling with that with. That we can just rejoice and be happy that things are beautiful and things are good and things work and not use it to assign value to ourselves. That's what God wants. But that means forgetting about ourselves. And that's extremely, extremely difficult. So pride destroys reason, pride destroys joy, pride also destroys community. Uh, we have seen that Haman is determined to destroy Mordecai, but not just him, but his people also. So there's a genocide in the book of Esther. And there's many examples from history where one person subjugates the whole country to his pride. Now it's usually a male person, that's why I'm using his. That, that one person is going to be so fearful of what other people think of him that any sign of disrespect, any sign of treason, any sign of doubt means death to them. And so millions of people, literally millions of people are murdered because they are perceived to question the greatness of the leader of the country. I mean, we know from history it happens all the time. It's just that some people are given that opportunity, others are not. But even looking at our culture, which is not a dictatorial culture. There's not one person to, to whom we all need to submit. And yet, because our culture is obsessed with the self, we see how destructive it is becoming. Our communities are fragmented because we're all focused on the self. Some of the traditional cultures seem to have stronger marriages and more children. Why? Because they're preconditioned not to think about themselves first, but think about the community first. We have been preconditioned to think about ourselves first and community second. And so our marriages are going to be unstable and we're not going to have a lot of children. And we know that from Western Europe because they're not having hardly any kids. Why? Because if it is about the self, why would you bring into the world somebody who's going to continuously challenge your pride? You just won't do it. So that's what we see in our culture. Now, last destructive element of pride is that pride eventually destroys the self. All this, we're doing all of this to build up the self and, and to, to focus on the self, and yet, in the end of it all, our self is going to be destroyed by this very pride. Now, we haven't read that part of the story yet, but later in Esther, Haman is going to be hanged on the same gallows he had built for Mordecai. This is, this is a symbolic thing. That what he designed to hurt others is going to eventually hurt him. And the same for us. Just because we, we, when we're proud and we focus on ourselves and we think we're going to treasure and build up the self, the self is going to die because of our pride. Uh, Miroslav Wolf says this. He's, he's a Yale professor, a, a Christian theologian. He says, far from finding fulfillment... The self turned in upon itself loses itself in the emptiness of its own meaninglessness. And the emptier the self is, the more obsessed with the self we become. And the more obsessed with the self we are, the emptier the self becomes. That's what happens with Haman. That's what's happening to us. If we go back to Genesis 3, the first expression of human pride, when Eve says, this looks good to me, 
and I'm going to get it, and I don't care what God says. I don't care what my husband thinks either. And when Adam says, I'm just going to follow Eve, and I'm just going to do what she says because it's better for me. When they make those decisions out of the concern for the self, the whole creation is set on the course to destruction. The whole creation starts to deteriorate, and we see that through the story of Genesis, how families deteriorate, how health deteriorates, because now the world has become about the self and not about the Creator. And we can only expect that to get worse as human history goes on. Now, that's the problem, right? Pride is the obsession of self, and it is tremendously destructive. How do we address it? We need to take our eyes off of the gallows and set them on the cross to address this issue of pride. It's the cross of Jesus that is ultimately the cure for the problem of pride. The cross does two things. Now let's think about it. He does two, the cross does two things necessary for us to, to, to start on the way of humility. The first thing the cross does is it shocks us. It shocks us out of our own self-obsession. One of our biggest problems is that we are unable to get out of ourselves. And a proud person doesn't know they're a proud person. They find out they're a proud person when there's a crisis in their life, when there's cancer or divorce, or something happens to your child, or you have a really difficult time with your friend, or your career falls apart. That's when the person realizes how proud they have been, because their pride has been challenged, they have been jolted out of their self-obsession. But there is nothing that's greater for this kind of jolting and shocking than the death of the Son of God himself. Now, usually, you know, when something bad happens to us, it helps us for a time. But we need something greater. We need something that is just going to absolutely shock us and floor us so that we cannot forget how proud we are. Now, I, I, I won't forget a sermon I heard by Alistair Begg about 10 years ago. He spoke at a, actually a missions conference that Moody uh, put on in, in Europe, and I wasn't there, but I got the, the CD, the tapes. I think it was the tapes at that time. And, um, and I listened to the sermon, and, and I still go back to it because it was just such a, an important truth that God communicated to me. And the truth is this. That's what Beg was talking about. He talked about atonement, or the death of Christ, being about flesh and blood, and not just a theological concept. He forced me this preacher forced me to think about the cross in terms of blood and guts and, and sweat and bones and skin, those physical terms. It really helped me because it's way too easy for us to say there's something happens on the cross, there's this great cosmic exchange that happens on the cross and we can understand with our minds, we can, we can get to the truth of it and believe it. But it's a whole other thing to see the cross as the actual physical experience that the Son of God went through on our behalf. And when we see the shocking character, the shocking nature of what Christ did for us, it jolts us, it shocks us. It kicks us out of, of the self-obsession that we are typically residing in. Now that's why watching a movie like The Passion of the Christ, and I know it's a controversial movie, but probably all of us have seen it. Watching a movie like that is disturbing. I, I watched it one time. I cannot watch it again. It's too hard. It's too hard for me. It, it shocks me. But perhaps I need to be shocked. 
Perhaps they need to see what actually happened to Christ. I'm not talking about all the historical details being perfectly kept, but I'm talking about the, the, the tenor, the, the tone of the movie, where Christ is shown to us as a suffering person whose skin is being torn. You know, there's blood, there's sweat, those kind of things. We need to think about that to understand how proud we are. John Owen is a, is a good Puritan writer, and he describes the cross of Christ this way. I think he does really well trying to get us into what was actually happening. He says, To see Christ, the wisdom and the power of God, always beloved of the Father, fear and tremble, bow and sweat, pray and die, to see him lifted up on the cross, the earth trembling beneath him as if unable to bear his weight, to see the heavens darkened over him as if shut against his cry, and himself hanging between both as if refused by each, and to see that all this is because of our sins, is to see clearly the holy justice and wrath of God against sin. And I would paraphrase it and say, it's to see holy justice and God's wrath against pride, because sin is pride at its very essence. We need to see that on the cross, Jesus was destroyed, literally destroyed, spiritually and physically destroyed for our pride. Because we are so self-obsessed, we can't see anybody else. And now we are forced to see this God-man who comes to die for us. And on the cross, we see that this whole time when we've been thinking about ourselves, Jesus is thinking about us as he's given his life for us. Romans 5, familiar passage, says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still proud, Christ thought of us and died for us. Listen to John Stott. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing, your curse that I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death, I am dying. Nothing in history of the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. And that's exactly what we need. We need to be cut down to size. And the cross does that. All of us have an inflated view of ourselves until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. How do you get out of yourself? How do you realize you're proud? You come to the cross. And you see that on the cross, your pride murdered the Son of God. And if it gets you, if you see how brutal the cross is, you have to start thinking outside of yourself. You can no longer say it is all about me when you can see the Son of God dying on the cross for you. So that's one thing, that the cross shocks us out of our self-obsession. And second thing the cross does is that it assigns eternal value to us. Now remember that we said that pride is the constant measuring of one's worth, either based on accomplishments or based on failures. So what happens on the cross? Our value now is eternally determined by the sacrifice of Jesus. The Son of God dies in our place. He exchanges his life for yours. Don't you see how important you are to God. 
that he would take his son, his perfect son, his eternal son, his divine son, and trade his life for yours. How can you doubt? How can you doubt how important you are to him? How can you try to assign value to yourself based on anything else but that? See, that question, how important I am, has to be settled at the cross. You have to see the depth of your pride, and you have to see how big the problem it is that the Son of God had to die for you. But you also have to see that he was glad to die for you. He loved dying for you because he loved you. And if we get those two, and we can hold it tight, we don't need to be proud anymore. The cross is that royal scepter that is extended to us today to protect us from pride's destruction and to prove to us the favor of the King who loves us. Here's the final question. Will you touch the tip of the scepter today? Will you respond to Christ in faith? Will you come to him and say, I will not let anybody else determine my value but you. And I will not be proud, but I will be humble, because it is not about all, all about myself. It's about the Son of God who died for me because he loved me and because I needed somebody like him to die for me. So let me pray. And then we'll come to the table. And if you are a Christian, if you're at peace with God and peace with other brothers and sisters, come to the table. This is for you. This is to celebrate what God has done for you. This is you coming into the throne room of God and he's extending the golden scepter to you and you touch its tip as you take the bread and the cup. You affirm your faith again. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who cares. That though you are absolutely at the center of creation, that everything was made for you, you are the person that we need to worship and continuously assign value to that you deserve. And yet, because of our sins, we have wandered off. We have become selfish, self-centered, self-obsessed, self-absorbed people. And we have made it all about ourselves, to our own destruction. And so we pray that through the cross of Christ, we will be able to be shocked out of that self-absorption, and we will be able to see just how much you value us and you love us. And let us anchor our identities in that. Let us not doubt how much we're worth to you, because we know as much as the life of your Son. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to die and to rise for us. We thank you that he is coming again. And as we come to the table every week, we are celebrating that he has promised to return. And we'll look forward to the time when all pride will be destroyed. And only your glory will remain. Father, we pray that as we come to this table that you would allow us to be truly repentant. If, if we are self-centered, if we have not been affected by the gospel so much that we forget about ourselves, we pray that you will forgive us and that you will, through your Holy Spirit, change us, make the cross real to us. Let us see the brutality of the cross and the broken body of Christ and the spilled blood of Christ that we come and touch and drink. Lord, I thank you that you teach us and you bring us closer to the cross and just pray that we would be able to respond in faith. We remember with Paul that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do it together.